The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Good morning. Good morning, students and staff and faculty. Uh, It's my great privilege to welcome to our campus the Reverend Dr. Preston Graham. Uh, Dr. Graham is a church planter and now currently the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, a multi-congregational church serving center in Greater New Haven, Connecticut. He's also the finder and coordinator of Mission Anabino, uh, which is what brings brings him here today to talk about that work, not only theologically, but also practically. Mission Anabino is a collaborative movement in missional ecclesiology on its way to planting 10 churches locally, that is in southern New England, and 10 churches globally within 10 years. Uh, He's been in the New Haven, Yale community for 25 years and teaches part-time as a visiting professor in Reformed and Missional Ecclesiology for over 15 years at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He received his degrees from Gordon-Conwell, from Yale, as well as from Pittsburgh Seminary, Aberdeen. Uh, But most importantly, he's our friend and partner in the ministry, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Graham. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for making some time uh, to join me here. Really, I feel honored. Um, you know, it's, it's funny how things go. Uh, you know that, that, that game where you, you pass knowledge and it goes around the circle and it comes back totally crazy? I had a fun little experience here with Dr. Fesco. Uh, I knew you were, you were in convocation, so I asked my secretary or my assistant, excuse me, if, if she would find out, do they want me to preach a sermon or do they want me to give a lecture? And, and uh, it comes back, and Dr. Fesco, I don't know where you are, but you say, well, a convocation is a, is a convention uh, of called students coming together. Uh, a, a sermon is an, uh, an exposition of scripture. And so I took that to be, uh, am I supposed to give a sermon or what? I don't know. Still don't, so you're going to get a kind of uh, a bit of an amalgam. Um, I am delighted to be here. I happen to be up uh, in San Francisco, and yes, I'm underdressed. I left my belt in San Francisco. Hey, how did that? And, but I am a little bit uh, haphazard here, but it's wonderful, um, really, to be here. I was just praying for you and for me and for this kind of text. And, um, so much of the spirituality of Anabino is born out of conversations with like-minded folks as yourself. Um, you know, I'm, uh, Mike Horton, of course, is a dear friend. We worship together in New Haven for several years. And, and uh, I think in some ways probably the things I'm about to share are going to not be such a surprise for you. But it is trying to think deeply about this idea of Anabino. Now, of course, you're, you're here, you're students, and uh, I, I take it you know that means I'm ascending first person. Um, and I want to get to that, but before I do, um, I want to put it a little bit into a context. Uh, the, the obvious context is I'm here to recruit, and I'm looking forward uh, to meeting with uh, many of you after this for a time of uh, Q&A and lunch that we're going to be sponsoring. Uh, we are recruiting church planners uh, to go globally as well as into New England. Um, with, uh, and, and we're, but, but that's, so that's one goal. Uh, is to do that. But another goal, something that started up last year, is a real collaborative that transcends denominations and transcends 
even those who may be church planting, a collaborative of people who want to really think deeply about missional ecclesiology. And our thesis, which really comes out today, is that ecclesiology is Christology applied. And it's interesting to me that in our tradition, we've spent such an amazing and inordinate amount of time thinking about the, ascension, the incarnational ministry of Christ, as we should. And, um, and, and it is the very basis of the gospel, isn't it? And it's the basis of a gospel-centered spirituality, of which Mission Anabano is very committed to being gospel-centered, the, the kind of things that Gospel Coalition are talking about, we, we uh, affirm. And we see that particularly insofar as it's related to uh, the covenant execution of Christ in his incarnational ministry. Uh, nothing new to you. But this thing on ascension, sometimes I think it's the forgotten advent and I do say Advent in the spirit of, of a Richard Gaffin who thinks of Pentecost as the advent of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Um, and the way in which that was prepared even by Luke in the two baptisms of his theology. Uh, of course, Christ being baptized in solidarity to humanity and his uh, completion of the law on our behalf. But also the Christ who baptizes in the spirit. And today especially I'm going to focus on John a little bit. Because John's uh, gospel also, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the word anabino happens two times in the first person singular uh, throughout the whole New Testament. And they're both in John. And very, uh, very interestingly, they're used to frame. You could almost frame the whole book of John's gospel uh, after the way in which he uses the, that word twice. The first time he uses the word both times is a little bit of a rebuke. The first time, he uses it in the negative. The disciples in chapter 10 are wanting him to, to, to go up to the mountain, up, up the mountain. And they're expecting, of course, his glorification um, during the temple, the, the, the uh, ceremony, temple ceremony of the booths. Um, he somewhat resorts him and says, uh, okay, I'm, I'm without my glasses. So I'm going to be doing this later on, if you don't mind. Um, but he, he sort of uh, rebukes them and says that uh, it's not my time. I have not yet anabino. I have not yet ascended. Uh, he, of course, will go secretly, of course, with the whole messianic secret motif following there, uh, in his humiliation. And, and when he does speak in the temple, he will begin to speak about his eventual glorification, if you remember, and the sending of the Spirit. Um, that's the first use, a rebuke that says, no, it's not yet time. Uh, there's work to be done in the incarnational ministry, and that work which will bring him to the cross, which is, of course, the forensic basic uh, basis of our, of our justification uh, by faith alone. The second time is in chapter 20. And this time it's a bit of a, a surprise. You know, you've got this endearing woman, Mary, who alone has been faithful to follow him through his travail, finding herself at the tomb uh, in memory, uh, memorializing, if I may, the memory of his incarnation, desiring him back, desiring his incarnation back. And of course, that's the occasion where Christ is raised from the dead and appears to her. And it takes her twice, you know, in the glorified body, I suspect there was some remnant of his, of the voice that she remembered in the incarnation, the same voice. We remember we believe in a self-same bodily resurrection. There was Christ, the self-same body yet glorified. She didn't readily recognize him, but as she listened carefully and looked closely, she realized this was the one. This is the one she loved, the one she was grieving. And what do you think she's going to do? 
she's going to rush up to him and she's going to just start, you've probably done it before. My son just came back from war and he, he, he was in a, you know, he, he fought. He was in, he's in a, well, I can't share much, but he's, he was in very dangerous situations doing very dangerous things. And I, I maybe feel something of the effect of Mary when I saw him for the first time. I'm almost crying about it now. And the sense of wanting to just cling to him. She was clinging to Christ. He'd come back. And in Christ, you almost think he's got a death hangover or something. And, and I confess, I, I know hangovers. I have a past. And he says, Mary, do not cling to me. Woman, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended. Now, take that out of the context. I can see a lot of psycho babble coming out of that text in the sermon. But in the context of John, you begin to realize that that was a really important climatic thing for John to anticipate the, the ascension ministry. In fact, I would argue that in John's gospel, the ascension ministry is the climax. As he's writing to a disenfranchised Judaism at the late period, you know, around 70, where the temple was in demise, not already gone. Perhaps they're originating this, the, the final fissure between the Pharisee rabbinic Judaism that focused on Torah and covenant and temple priestly Sadducee Judaism that focused on, of course, temple spirituality. Um, that's a little bit of a conjuncture. It's not, we're not sure. But whatever's going on, John wanted us to focus on temple as the, the ultimate of the ascension ministry of Christ. The same Christology, the word that became flesh and templed among us that accomplishes the Torah and the sacrificial system of the temple in Christ Jesus is now, he's promising these homeless Jewish Christians, is now your temple vis-a-vis this house of God that he promised to build. Ones that we typically portray as heaven. But if you look closely, he speaks of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, and how I will come to you. You will see me. And he speaks especially of you will see me in in the information, in the language, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where he speaks of this I and you and you and me, priestly prayer, John 17, of course. Now, I just gave you the whole introduction because what I want to do is put that in context and come back to it a little bit. So how's that for an introduction? Let's pray. Father, the miracle of ascension and dissension one that we see as the very basis of our assurance, wherein we behold the word that is fleshed out in temple. By means, we have grace, and we receive it by faith alone, such that we come here today as those who are set free from the fear of condemnation, rejection, we're We come not examining ourselves, but examining Christ and his work for our salvation. And we know then your love. But Lord, we pray now for the same mystery of ascension and dissension, wherein by the Holy Spirit you would descend upon this room, creating in it a kind of temple experience where your Shekinah glory would fill us and open our hearts. Lord, 
Let me go off text if I need to, not your text, but mine, and speak to this community what would encourage them and speak unto us all what would amaze us as to your grace now by your presence. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, please forgive me. I'm going to be doing this. I am about 80% blind. You know, um, there is a context to this conversation, isn't there? The context, of course, being that we live in a context where, where people uh, have moved. I think we're in a kind of a modern hangover. Uh, we are tired of the reductionism and the foundationalism that, that pitted us against one another, everything being reduced to either ors. We live in a generation, my people who come into my church are people, many of which who've been, uh, who felt pain and suffering in the church. We started a, a ministry called Goatville for goats, and it's just flourishing. People who don't feel safe in a church, a church that somehow lost the gospel, uh, and a church that somehow, and we confess that sin about the church in solidarity with us, our church, often in our congregation even as we begin to rebuild and re-talk about the church. and So modernity comes with a lot of, of casualties, as you know. The casualty of, of, of losing a sense of confidence, of certainly in the, in the supernatural. Uh, the, the, the arguments that we had with Dawkins and et al., you know, rebuilding uh, the doctrine of God, I think in some way pale compared to the kinds of arguments that we now have to have as Orthodox believers, with our world. Uh, we have a world that, that now is what David Brooks has described as the, neuro, uh, the neuro-Buddhist. And I would just add to that that I'm encountering all the time now up in the Northeast, neuro-Christian Buddhist. What's that? Someone who, who, with the use of brain science, we've begun to actually quantify we needed that empirical data, didn't we? We're still, you know, postmodern is just more modern with a little nihilism tacks to it. And so we still have to kind of quantify our beliefs, and we've found some of that in brain science, where we see that, that the human person is capable of transcending themselves in, in, in experiential ways. And people now are very open-minded towards having religious experience. They're looking for the presence, for the experience of the divine. We've lost hope in that, that empirically empirical only world where we have been reduced to atoms. And we really are getting that in New England and the greater New York area, if you will. That's the world that I live in, and probably yours as well, here in San Diego and San Francisco and other places. And so it's interesting to me that, that into that world we need to talk about this issue of temple. Into a world that's rejecting the church, the organized church, the visible church, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. That's just another way of saying that I believe in spirituality. But we don't believe in person. Divine person. We belong, The divine spirit, that's great. But the divine person, a person with opinions and ideas, passions, I'll say with quotations, a person that has right and wrong categories, a person God, I, I, take, I would go back to the modernist debates on the existence of God any day. 
in comparison to the debate we're in now. The debate about, is there a God, and if so, yeah, sure, there's God. You know, he, it, she works through karma. He, it, she works through experience. He, it, she, but unregulated, undefined, unorganized God. And into that context, we need to talk about the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God incarnate in Jesus Christ, person God. And I think that's a great challenge. And it not only is it a challenge as related to the concept God, but it now will start to inform our spirituality. Spirituality is in, as you know. And therefore, there's a lot of courses and talk about what is Christian spirituality. Well, I know here you have the right answer, if I know anything at all of the people who are teaching you. Spirituality, Christian spirituality is ecclesial spirituality. A spirituality that is not left to the experience of individuals unregulated by divine law or covenant, but one that is carefully designed upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone in a manner that when we, our habits, our experiences are informed by the person of God, as that then is applied to the way we practice. I heard someone once say that if I had the choice of of preaching a sermon or writing hymns, I'd write hymns. This was a New Testament professor. And I kind of was curious about that. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, because the practices of the people might inform their theology more than what they you know, can recite in an exam. Now, I, that's a little bit hyperbole. They're both important, right? But I think that's a real significant thing, this issue of spirituality. So, so what I, let's just talk about that a little bit. What, what do you see happening in the spirituality? On the one hand, I see two trends. One is the trend uh, towards uh, a no longer uh, what I'd call, again, neuro-Christian spirituality, where, honestly, the organized church just simply isn't believed in. Um, you've read the stuff. It's everywhere. Uh, I think of the shack, <laughs> Paul Young's, and it's getting passe to quote that in a Christian world. But we need those pastors to listen carefully to the message in the shack in places like it, resonating with the sympathies that people have, whether they tell you or not, coming out of modernity. Uh, let me just take you back to a conversation in his fictional Jesus It's a warm spring day on a deck overlooking a pond near the shack. Mac is struggling to understand paradise. And Jesus says, it is a picture of my bride, the church, individuals who together form a spiritual city with a living river flowing through the middle. And on both shores, trees growing with fruit that will heal the hurt and sorrows of the nations. And this city is always open and each gate into it is made of a single pearl. And you'll remember Mac paused and he's searching for the right words, not sure if he has the freedom to say it. And he says, you're talking about the church at this, as this woman you're in love with. I'm pretty sure I haven't met her. And then the commentary, he turns away slightly, she's not the place I go on Sundays. You need to hear that. As I have opened up the, uh, as I've worked at opening up our church to be a safe place to be, People are starting to confess that they have a lot of fears about the church and the way in which they've experienced it coming out of their youth groups, maybe, if they're Christians, or the way they hear about it from the 
from the media that doesn't do us much service, does it? And then, of course, the response by Jesus is revealing, Mac, that's because you're only seeing the institution, a man-made system. That's not what I came to build. What I see are people in their lives, a living, breathing community of all those who love me, not buildings and programs. He goes on to say, I didn't create, create, I don't create institutions, never have, never will. That's an occupation for those who want to play God. So no, I'm not too religious, says Jesus. Ouch, playing God, that hurts. But that's where a lot of people are. You know the titles, George Barna's Revolution, Herbert Hoffer's Churchless Christianity, Frank Viola and George Barna's Pagan Christianity. Of course, the thesis being that the organized church is a product of paganism. Leonard Sweet, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Brian Sanders, Life After Church, Jim Palmer, Divine. I like this title, by the way, Divine No Bodies, No Body of Christ. That's really cute. I like that. Sarah Cunningham, Dear Church, Letters from a Disillusioned Generation, Julie Dunn, Quitting Church. Again, it all sounds like neuro-Buddhism to me, uh, a kind of uh, belief that his, uh, is absent a personal God that then would translate into a, a, a defined community that's based on the person and who he is and what he came to accomplish. That's one form. The other form of this Reaction to modernity, I think, again, and you hear about it a lot, so I won't talk much about it, but it's the re-everything movement. Now, you do believe in the church, let's say. Have you noticed how many titles are coming out with the prefix we, re, re? They're all over the place. Re-everything. A few here that I can think of right off the top here. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis describing the total church involving a radical reshaping around the gospel. Doug Paget's church reimagine, Driscoll's reformation, uh, and I could go on and on. Now what's interesting here, it's almost in wiki fashion, there's a sort of collaborative, undefined collaborative, and I even have, uh, say this with a little uh, hesitation because there's a little, da- forming networks, forming associations, a kind of re-denominationalism going on, a kind of re-church going on. And, and to be sure, I, I, I actually am a little more sympathetic to it, given what I just said about modernity and the modern-facing church. We need, and I thought it was part of our simple referendum motto, that we always, every generation, ought to be busy about reformulating our beliefs and our spirituality. Don't forget spirituality, people. Beliefs and spirituality. Uh, another anecdote, the same professor I was mentioning in seminary, 20-something, 25, 30 years ago, I remember him saying in in the New Testament uh, Romans course, he says, now, most of you, having been, this was a higher-level course, you're going to do fine on this exegesis paper, but but it's the very last chapter that I'm worried about. You're going to do all this amazing work, developing the main, the original intention point, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the text, and then when it comes to applying it, you're going to, you're just going to go off into space, and you're going to get an F if your application isn't by good and necessary inference based on your explication. And I think that's what I'm afraid about. Um, it feels to me, this wiki fashion, this amalgam of things, it's, it feels to me often it's just one reaction against another. If one church is a didactic church, an apologetics 
kind of oriented church, maybe a rationalist oriented church. It's just a reaction to communalism. If it's a communalistic church, it's a reaction to contemplativeness and, and sacramentalism. And it's hip to react. And you go, okay, now we're in this church versus that church versus this church. Maybe it's a church that, that, that thinks a lot about the forensic nature of our gospel. But then it reacts and it loses the forensic nature, and, and which is the very basis of our grace-based uh, assurance. It's an objectifying grace. It's, I'm, out of the, I'm out, of the, uh, out of the transaction there when you talk about this thing that happened between Christ and his Father on behalf of me. But then we lose the subjectivistic, uh, the salvation applied. You see what I'm going here. And what's concerning to me is, is then what, how would we reformulate our spirituality? How would we go about doing that? And the answer that Mission Anabino is working on, and it's a collaborative way, is Christology applied to spirituality or ecclesiology because ecclesiology will become that spirituality. Uh, I don't mean to exclude the individual. We believe that there's an individual component to, to, to Christian life. You know, I, I was told not to say this in front of you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Horton, you just, just close your ears. No, I, I think I can say it right. Um, maybe we need to think, rethink conversion, for instance. And this is just one of hundreds of these sorts of categories. I had a guy named Bim Lau in my church. He's from Singapore. His family's Buddhist and Taoist family, they faith. He became a Christian through our ministry. Um, he professed faith in Christ uh, personally, which I think is very important. But there, I do, I'm a conversionist preacher. I do believe in conversion. I do think that, that there needs to be conversion. It can be a conversion that you can't put a date on. It can be a conversion that's gradual. It can start from baptism and somewhere we, we, we are able to be self-aware enough to know that, in fact, I'm broken and I'm, I'm, I've been reduced and he, uh, to, to see that I'm bankrupt spiritually. You can put all the language you want to it. The end of the day, there comes to a place where we, we have to turn away from self-reliance as a basis for pleasing God, as a basis for our identity, etc. And he did that. He really had a conversion where he turned away from his self-reliance. He put his reliance upon Christ as his Savior, the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ, all that stuff. Two years passes, and he walks into my study one day, and he's crying. He quotes, I think it's what, Matthew 25, where it talks about that I'll pit father against mother and, or father against son and child against, you know what I'm talking about, Matthew 25, I think it is. He quotes that passage. Oh, crud. <laughs> I didn't say crud. You know, he's, we got a problem going here. He says, look, I've been reading the Bible, Pastor, and I saw you do baptism the other day in your church, and I'm not baptized. Am I a Christian? let that question sink what are those passages Ben well you know Matthew 28 go ye therefore up make disciples of all nations how instrumental clause <laughs> by baptizing them really seems arbitrary God I mean okay Acts chapter 2 38 you know preaching Christ at Pentecost what must we do to be saved repent which I take to mean the the balance of faith, turn away from self-reliance, i.e. turn in self-reliance to Christ, and be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
Really? And this baptism now saves you, Quad Titus. Really? On and on it goes. What's going on here? What was Jesus talking about in the priestly prayer? I and you, you and me, blah, blah, blah. All focused on this communal formation that's going on. And so I looked at them at the time. I didn't really know what to say. I knew that I believed in Jurodivino ecclesiology. That is, uh, that the church is to be regulated carefully by divine law. I think that's a beautiful doctrine, by the way. I hope you rediscover the regulative principle. It's one of the great doctrines of our tradition. And so it's a, it, is, it is the doctrine that preserves grace and spirituality, where the church can't lord it over your conscience. The church needs limits, you know. By the way, if I could just put in a little uh, thing for James Bannerman and his, he, that is his, that's quintessential par excellent two-volume Juro Divino Ecclesiology, if you've ever read it. I make all my students read it. They love it. After, they hate it when I sign it, but they love it after I've signed it. It's a little scholastic. It's a little, you know, 19th century. But you can get over it. It's really an amazing book. And so, you know, I know my Jordan ecclesiology. I come. I, I was sort of taught ecclesiology in an old school context. So I'm going, yeah, well, the Bible commands it. Therefore, we believe it. Do it. Right? That's, that's the answer. But there's something in me that knew he was asking a deeper question. Am I a Christian? Well, yeah, you're justified by grace through faith alone. You're a Christian. You're justified. But then God, isn't it, why would you do this? Why would you ask for baptism? And and my memorialist answer, of course, would have been, well, it's a witness. We love the word witness. It makes us feel good with our friends on the other side. But is it more than a witness? Is it somehow effectual? Is it somehow? And then I went back to my own confession, the Westminster, and I see this language. There's a spiritual relationship between the things, the sign and the things signified. I see this language that grace is conferred through baptism with the all-important caveat, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, i.e. it's a mediatorial kind of relationship versus immediate. Now, I know the Roman Catholics use a mediatorial church. I think they actually mean immediate. And the way I'm using it, at least, just to clarify. So was Ben saved? Well, yes and no. Oh, no, we can't do that in modernity. We can't say yes and no, can we? Everything's either or. Well, yes, he's saved. He's saved by grace through faith alone. But has he been, has it been applied in the fullness of Christ? Is he fully experiencing the grace of the gospel if he's not been baptized? What does baptism mean? What does it include about our spirituality? What does it engraft us into? It says it engrafts us into Christ. But where is Christ? <laughs> Totus Christus, Augustine would answer. Christ is the flesh of the congregation that is mystically in union with the incarnation humanness of Christ's ascension in a manner in which we, by partaking of the church, Partake of Christ, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but ordinarily. And now I'm quoting again from our Westminster, out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. Was he fully converted? He was justified. But I don't think he was fully converted. Not according to Peter. You know, everybody loves Augustine. I'm, I'm off track. You can tell. I'm just, I can't read it, so I'm just doing this on my head. It's all right. Um, I love Augustine's Confessions, don't you? It's one of the great books. Now, there's a lot of stuff there that you have to remember the context. This is a guy that, you know, had a, had a past. 
Frank got set earlier. And a lot of his spirituality, I suspect, reflects some of that past and what was good for him, but maybe not necessarily, um, uh, you know, or, you know, it has to be. But, but it's interesting how many people think of his conversion as the garden experience. But Augustine doesn't think so. Augustine tells you he wasn't converted until he was baptized. That he still struggled with his, with his relationship to Christ and, and his assurance of them until he was incorporated and grafted in the body of Christ. And so what I want to do is, is um, introduce you to this idea. And so here's how I would argue for this thesis that ecclesiology is Christology applied. And that if that's true, that ecclesiology is a soteriological category, even if it needs to be qualified, it's not a justification category. It's not the basis of our assurance that I get baptized. Just to put it out there, I'm not an Auburn guy. But there is something about the fullness of Christ who fills all in all that requires both a head and a body according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. The church is, ordinarily, an essential element of the gospel. How would I argue that? Well, I'd take him to John, for instance. I would show how John very carefully crafts the, God, the incarnation, the, the Christology, the word became flesh and templed among us, and then he gives you that depiction of the glory, the Shekinah glory, and the spirit came upon him, the fullness of which, etc., etc., I would show how much time John focuses on the whole temple spirituality, how he frames Christ and all the I am statements as an I am the temple. Every one of those statements, go back and look at it, I think every one is in the context of a temple ceremony. I would talk about how John shows that, that, that this temple, the incarnational temple, word became flesh temple, that it would die and in three days it would be raised up again. And how that would then work itself out in the conversations with with, uh, the disciples telling them what to expect when he ascends. And the sending of the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, acting in, with, and through this newly constituted community, I will be with you. What does it mean in Matthew? I am with you until the end of the age. How are you with me? Where are you with me? (laughs) Christian Buddhism says... Through experience, through an undefined, unregulated experience. Orthodox Christians say, as defined and as regulated by the carefully designed organization of Christ, by Christ, vis-a-vis the apostolic foundation in and with and through the life of the church. Fits perfectly what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and what John says in his gospel. And so I'd make that argument. And if I made that argument, I would want to then revisit even the Christological conversations. Now, I know that Nestorianism is a heresy. I'm not so sure that Nestorius was. In fact, later, Cyril, if you know the two sides, you know, Nestorius on the east, uh, Cyril on the left, uh, the the Council of Ephesus, 4, I think, 31, uh, Cyril with the support of the Pope at the time, excommunicates Nestorius two years later. Cyril, by the other pope, is excommunicated by Nestorius, but then they came together and they agreed. And Cyril actually agreed with Nestorius when he clarified his point. And I'm going to try to find it in here because I think it's important. What do you know? The Lord wanted me to do it. It just happened to be here. Isn't that cool? 
Here's the way he said it. I did not say that the Son was one person and God the Word another. Notice that, Son, Word. That's not the, 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 the comparison. I said that God the Word was by nature one and the temple by nature another. One Son by conjunction. So it took Chalcedon, of course, eventually to, to, to clean all this up. And, of course, this statement and John's chapter 1, verse 14, was, was loomed large in the conversation, as you probably know. But I'll just sum up Chalcedon pretty, again, I've got some systematic guys in here. I'm probably getting in trouble. But basically, their conclusion was distinct but never separate, related to the human and the divine natures. Distinct but never separate. Distinct insofar as what the God-man could do, executing the covenant and the forensic aspects of all of that, the authority of the covenant that is Christ's authority, Distinct from the church, if you're going to move it to ecclesiology, see? But I would say the same thing holds together, although with a caveat of not infallibility. Very important caveat, because it's mediated, not immediate. That you could say, and I think this is what ultimately Augustine would say, that there's a sense in which you experience Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all, according to Paul, when the head is not separate from, if always distinct, from the church. And therefore, he goes on to talk about how it's a temple, a dwelling place of God, a household of God. You know the passage in Ephesians 2. You know what's interesting, by the way? In Ephesians 2, uh, it's, it's a carefully crafted argument. Su, de, su, de, twice. You, know, you were once, but now. You were once, but now. You were once dead, now you are alive together with Christ and that's where he talks about the, the reference to the incarnational ministry of Christ, the forensic accomplishment of Christ, and therefore how by faith alone we're saved, lest any man can boast. That's part one, verses one through ten. Part two, verses eleven through the end, you were once alienated. You were once estranged. See, different language now. Presence language. And now you've been included in this household. And he calls it a temple. We don't go from the Old Testament to the New Testament from temple to no temple, do we? We know better than that. We go from the Old Testament to the New, New Testament from temple to temple, but temple fulfilled and realized in Christ. And so that's the argument of Paul. That's the argument of, of John. And here's the way that, again, it fits into the Christology um, applied. I'm going to zip on through here. Just give me a couple of seconds here. Because here's the way that uh, Augustine would say it. He says, beyond the pale of the church... Uh, no, I'm sorry, that was Calvin. I'm going to go on to Augustine here. He says... Hmm. I'm sorry. Let me just get that quote here. Such a good quote. I want to get it right. Well, somehow I knocked out the actual really quote. So I guess the guy didn't want to say it right now. He says basically this, though. Um, he goes, let us rejoice and give thanks that we are made not only Christians, but Christ. Now, again, let's take him tongue-in-cheek here. I don't think he means it, you know, immediately. <laughs> Do you understand, brothers, and apprehend the grace of God upon us? Marvel, be glad we are made Christ, for he is the head. We are the members. The whole man is he and we. The fullness of Christ then is head and members 
head and members. What is that Christ in the church? Now, it's interesting that later he's going to make it really clear. He's going to mock those who think of the Lord's Supper as the literal body and blood of Christ. Did you know that? He says that even as we have eaten and drunk the body and the blood of Christ, the Lord, we in turn permit ourselves to be eaten and drunk. You hear him, Totus Christus? And say the same words to our neighbor, take, eat, and drink, and this by no means in jest, but in all seriousness, meaning to offer yourselves with all your life, even as Christ did with all of, uh, that he had in the sacramental words. That's an amazing statement. Um, what's going on here? Back to Ben. For Bem to be fully converted, he needed to profess his faith in the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins as a basis of assurance. And I keep saying as a basis for his assurance. I hope you're hearing that. But he also needs to be baptized, wherein he's engrafted into the body of Christ, mystical union with the body on earth as it is in heaven. Another definition of the kingdom, isn't it? Voss does it well. He talks about the kingdom of God the epicenter of which is the church of Jesus Christ, even as we would understand the kingdom of God to, to be at work outside of the church. I, I make the ecclesial, ecclesial distinction, the church acting jointly, this is Bannerman, versus the church acting severally. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. These are important categories for us to rediscover that our fathers and mothers worked hard to discern. So, I'm here to recruit churches, church planters. Why should we plant church? I was speaking to a core group in San Francisco uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday. And they were sitting there, and we were talking about church planting, the excitement of it, the difficulty of it. And I kind of set them up a little bit, and I'm going to do to you what I did to them a little bit. I talked about all the practical reasons why we should plant churches, quoting those who had studied it. And again, it was a bit of a setup, and I'm going to move it to it here. Um, I think of Kim Keller's remarks. Uh, the vigorous, continuing, continual planning of new congregations is the single most crucial, no notice this word, strategy for, quote, the numerical growth of the body of Christ, one, two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches, nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing Mega churches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planning. Talks about how also churches that church plant are also churches that tend to be renewed. You think about, you have to give up, you have to die with Christ to give up resources and people to plant churches. And there's a renewal that comes through that. I've found it in my own congregation as well. And so I, I agree. You know, Social science tells us that it might be the single most powerful way to preach the gospel. Again, with a gospel-centered spirituality, the church is relegated merely to a strategy to preach the gospel. Now, you see what I just did on you. And we want to preach the gospel. Go to Romans 15. Paul makes the case. This is interesting, by the way. Again, I wish I had all my notes in front of me. I could actually quote all this. I do. I can't see. <laughs> But Paul actually makes the case why he's got to go to Spain, to the Roman church. And he tells them that he's going to go where the gospel has not yet been preached. And what's interesting is he talks about his ministry already being accomplished because everyone has been reached. Go back and read it. It's not quite the language, but basically, I've already, where I've already, it's, all, it's, it's already been done. The gospel has been, it's concluded. It's been reached. 
I'm scratching my head. Really? Everybody became Christians? You know, how is this, how is Acts summarized in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? Very little. You could take for the exception, of course, that amazing Pentecost experience where it gives you the numbers of people converted. And we're all for that. You know, that's not negative. Of course. But in very strategic places, and the churches of Christ grew and multiplied. The churches of Christ. Church planting was the summary of what God was doing through the apostles in Acts. So for Paul, in his mindset, to have planted a church that's accessible to the people in their language and their flesh and their vernacular, which is very important about temple. Temple always has to be incarnated again, if you will. It has to, it, it gives, if, if covenant gives a bias to, this is just a category, throw in your head, it goes all places. If covenant is a category of globalism, one never changing aspect of the divinity of God's word. Templeism is very biased towards localism. The more local, the better, which is why I'm such a fan of multi-congregational churches, and that's different for me than multi-site. I want every congregation to have a pastor. But this idea of getting it local, well, see, for Paul, to have access to a local church is to have access to the gospel, therefore it's been reached, that community. And he needed to go to a place where there weren't churches. See, that's an amazing statement. And you could argue, therefore, a strategic statement. But here's the thing. If you've heard anything I've said today, and this is what I said to the core group two days ago, I said, even if it was not a good strategy, and right now, based on what I see happening in this reaction to modernity and all the church stuff, I don't know. I'm not sure that it's going to be a popular movement anytime soon, okay, <laughs> to plant churches that are carefully, architecturally designed according to the Apostolic Foundation, all that kind of stuff. But so even if it's not a strategic plan that works, I'd do it anyway. I'd do it anyway for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. I would do it anyway because it's the fullness of Christ that the Shekinah glory wants to glorify on earth as he is in heaven. And so I turned to this, con this core group and I said, listen, there are going to be days when you don't have, you're going to think it's not working. There are going to be days when you're asked to sacrifice things you never dreamed you'd be thinking about sacrificing. And just remember that what you do is not just a strategic plan along with many. What you do is you partake of the divine nature. Now, guys, I use that from Peter. You are partaking of the divine nature in Christ insofar as you participate, koinonia, in Christ and the way in which Christ is now fleshed out in the midst of us today in this world. You are partaking of the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. There you go. That's the point of Mission on Avana. To rediscover that, to explore some of the themes I just mentioned to you today. One last thing I'm going to say to you, and I didn't get to talk about it here. We can talk about it later, but the, um, the Christology applied to ecclesiology thesis. We should also think very deeply about how this ascension Christ, like in his incarnational Christ, word became flesh, then accomplished his work through the vocations of prophet, priest, and king. And what 
are the metrics. And that's literally what I have in a, in a thing that I do with our church planners. What are the metrics that are consistent with gospel-centered, that is, a gospel-centered church that rightly is, a, is, a, is a, uh, whose spirituality is reflecting the finished and complete work of Christ unto salvation. I want us to be a gospel-centered church, but I also want us to be a missional church. Now, you should know that term, but if you don't, I, don't, I didn't say a mission-sending church. That's a gospel-centered church that sends out itinerant preachers or something. No, I want to be a missional church, a church that defines itself as missionary by her very nature, a church who understands itself to be a locus of Christ, not a, a, a sending agency, which is what we tend to turn denominations into, or not a credentialing board, which is what we tend to turn churches and, and denominations into, but a genuine, albeit mediatorial presence of Christ in the midst of a city or a local community. That's missional church. So there, there you've got, we want to be a gospel-centered church, distinct, but never separate from being a missional church. Forensics, good. Active. Participation, good. Participatio divina. If you want the Latin versus giro divina, we want both. That's postmodern and not the sense of philosophical postmodern. That's, I want it all, not the reductionistic Christ that we've been getting. And as you think about both of those, just as Christ accomplished and fleshed out the covenant, satisfied it as a covenant executor. I love Meredith Klein. I know you do too. And man, he gets you to everything I've just said. It's unbelievable. But just as he did all this stuff as covenant executor, he does all this stuff now in the life of the church. How do you measure a healthy church? It should be five things. Call it five marks. But I, yeah. Five things. Gospel-centered. Missional. I think of that as the teleological or eschatological aspects of what a church is all about. Then you have the instrumental. How is it that God comes and descends into this world? What are the vocations that we look for in Christ that informs our church? Prophetic, priestly, kingly. What are the metrics of a prophetic church? What kind of church would be metrically ba- that, that would be prophetic? You'd be didactic. There's not a year since I've been in New Haven, he can tell you this, where I haven't taught confessional theology to our congregation in a systematic way. Confessional theology, I said, not systematic. A little different. Priestly. What would it mean? One of the things I say all the time, let me put this out in in kind of a personal way, and I say I'm out of time, so I'm going to just do this quick. Every day before our congregation meets, for every week when we meet for worship, I'll stand up and I'll introduce it briefly and we have a little time. We brought a lot of contemplative things into our, our service since you've been here, by the way, just to kind of slow it down. But uh, I'll say, guys, welcome, you know, and I'll always say something effective. You're safe here. And there I'll explain the implications of the gospel. But then I'll usually say something like this. You know, there's basically two kinds of worship services. There's what some people call a revival service and there's some, what some people call the temple service. The revival service will get you to the gospel. You need to understand that what we're inviting you to do here is is bigger than that. We're going to do the gospel. We're just going to do it. We're going to invite you to participate in it. And that's what our worship is. Because that's a temple service. That's a metric. Therefore, we follow the four movement of the gospel. As you know, the four movements of the gospel that also are the four movements of the temple, which are also the four movements of Revelations 4 and 5 in the heavenly worship. And we follow those four movements. And it makes you just walk right through the stations of the gospel, if you want to put it that way. 
And then, of course, we come to the table where we fence it. And I see that as part of worship for a number of weeks. It's an invitation. It's, I mean, people love that we fence the table at our church because we do it in a very gospel-centered way. You're, you're, you know, we want you to know how glad we're, you're here. We're excited you've been able to partake, at least taste. I usually use the word taste Jesus Christ here. Now, you're, you, you want to be true to your conscience, and you won't partake of this meal now. We're waiting for you to be ready to where you know that you not only want to profess your faith, your hope, and your life, and I'll say it in a thousand different ways in Christ and his incarnational work in so many words, for justification in so many words, and are ready to join, being grafted into Christ. If you haven't been baptized through Christian baptism, if you've been baptized by membership in a gospel believing church, it doesn't have to be this one, it's blah, 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 blah. So there's the five marks of the church, if you will, in at least how we conceive of Christology applied to ecclesiology. Gospel-centered, missional, prophet, priest, and king, and the metrics that come out of that. I wish I could say more. What a blessing it has been to be with you. I would look forward to meeting every one of you. I know you could get a lot of questions. Um, uh, I think, what time is the lunch again, Junie? Where is it? 1.15. Where? All right, one of the classrooms. Um, he said, I, do, I have, do I have five minutes for Q&A, or, or are we through? I can't remember what you said. I, so I'm going to just I'll open it up for if there are any clarifications, maybe, Q&A. What do you want? Anything? Comments? Thoughts? I'm sorry, I can't see. Oh, please. Go for it. Great question. Um, I'm glad you said that. Uh, it's a radical Presbyterian. You know, it's interesting. As you know, my uh, doctoral work was in uh, Stuart Robinson in the uh, border states uh, during the Civil War and looking at the whole relation of Christ and culture and all that. And, you know, if you think back in those days, um, there was a Senate, there was Presbytery, there was, there was General Assembly, Presbytery, or Senate, Presbytery, and uh, Church. Um, now, I'm not going into all the reasons why, as a Presbyterian, we don't have the Senate. I think it's more of a, there's some probably political reasons for that. Um, but, but in some ways, if we did, that would be my version of a multi-congregational church in a city. A very radical uh, uh, Presbytery, if you will. Now, let me give you the theological answer a little bit. Um, I do believe that there needs to be a tension between globalism and localism. Things that we share, the ele- what I call the elemental things, the elements of our faith and practice, versus the form in which those elements take. And I think that, that the more we can experience the, uh, the unity of the body of Christ, we should. So I'm all for multicultural worship. Now here, you may or may not agree with me, but having been doing this now for 30 years, practically, I've seen how multicultural churches can also be imperialistic churches. In about three to four years, cultural hegemony sets into a particular church. The style of the sermon, the style of how you do things, how long your sermon is, the language that you use, the bulletins, the way that the bulletins look, what you do for this versus that. And at some point, you're going to be asking someone to change cultures in order for them to have Christ mediatorially in their life. And that's the place where we then go and say, let's do another church. And do another church, even if it's, so it's, it's as much culturally defined, 
a site is as much a culture, socio-cultural definition as it is in the geographical. There's something that renders the gospel inaccessible to a person in their own flesh. That's my definition of a multi-congregational church. Where I differ and why I distinguish it from multi-site is my ecclesiology has a view of the Everything I just said about the church in my class I do on pastoral theology, I do as, the, as what it means to be a pastor. In other words, I don't think of past, I think of a pastor in a very holistic way. I want every congregation to have access to the pastor who is administering word and sacrament and discipline in the context of a session, of course. Um, and so I'm, a, I'm nervous. I'm not a megachurch. I'm sorry. I mean, I think God's used them, but I'm, I'm, I'm really biased on the temple side is to be the more local, the better. Um, there are, I mean, again, I'm a practitioner here, so it sounds great in theory, but I know that there's all kinds of practical issues like, well, how much congregation do you have until you can be, exist, you can financially be, make it. One of the things, so here it looks in New Haven is we have one budget. Right now we're three congregations, but we have one budget. We have one session. We have, uh, we, we carefully discern between the elements of each one of those metrics that I mentioned, the five marks, they're the elementals of that metric. And then there, of, of those things, and then there are the forms that they can take. If you were to go to the Hill Congregation, which is pastored by Tolliver Wills, it's a predominantly African-American, low-income community. Um, what I said about the worship a minute ago, same thing. You go there, the same four movements, same spirituality, but it's going to look very different. I wear a robe, a Genevan robe, in one service. In the other service, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing blue jeans for the Goatville service. And, one, and he's wearing uh, what he wears. He sings different music, of course, and I do, but it's more than music. It's the style. It's everything. But it's distinguishing elements from forms very carefully. And I know that's part of the debate. That's, let's duke it out. Let's see which ones they are. Um, does that answer your question, though, or do you want to follow up? That was a, I'm really glad you asked that question, actually. Thank you. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.